0: Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7, it's on page 182 if you're using that blue Bible. And Joshua, at this point, this is when God's people have come into the promised land, God's promises to His people are coming to bear, and they start having their first victory. And you know the story of the walls of Jericho, and now Jericho has fallen, and it's it's just flat as a pancake, so to speak, right? And so it's down. There's been success. And everything in Jericho, was nothing in Jericho was to be plundered. Nobody was to take it as plunder for themselves. It was all to be devoted to God. And so then, notice verse, chapter 6, verse 27, so Yahweh was with Joshua and His fame was in all the land. Great! And then comes Joshua 7, starting at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. Here's Achan who thought only about me and not about we. Here's Achan who thought only about me and not about we. Not realizing the connection, the covenantal connection between God's people one and all. And so what happens is that all of Israel actually fails at the very next episode when they go out against a very inferior military force and they get whooped by this smaller force. And they come back and they're grieving. Why would God let this happen? And God says, because you broke faith with me. And when they finally figured it out, they found out it was Achan who had taken as Plunder the things that were to be devoted to God. And so, verse 24 of Joshua 7. Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you trouble us? Why did you bring trouble on us? So Achan had taken the the things devoted to God. He had plundered them. He took them home. And the home, remember they're nomads at this point, is a tent. That means everybody in his tent knew he had dug up the dirt under his tent to hide these things. Everybody was complicit in what he had done in his family. And so then it goes on. The Lord brings trouble on you. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raise up over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. We may have all kinds of questions about this event, but the one thing that comes through clear, crystal clear is that Achan thought of me and not we and refused to see how we is very important. And in the we is the me, not the other way around. Me, then, maybe we. Right, did you get it? It was a very serious moment. Keep that in the back of your head as we move then to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3. We continue our series through Colossians getting on with the gospel. We're picking up right where we left off. We're now at verse 5. And this is all flowing out of everything Paul has said up to this point. I mean, this is the here's the the corner has been turned in Colossians here. All of this is application to everything Paul has said already. So starting at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, these vices he just listed, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. What I read and summarized to you from Joshua and what I read to you from Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are about to have our perspectives and awareness challenged. By your words to us, oh, give us your spirit to help us as we are being renewed in knowledge after your image. Amen. You may be seated. On the back of the worship guide is the sermon outline with uh, lots of space for notes and some questions at the end for your care groups. Please have your Bibles open to Colossians 3, 5 through 11. So right here, Paul now brings all of the theology. He brings all of the theology, all of the dogma, all of this concepts in the first part of Colossians. He brings it all here and lays it out right here where we sit, where we live, where we eat, where we breathe. He brings it home to us right here. He shows us how we become so heavenly minded, verses 1 through 4, how we become so heavenly minded, 1 through 4, that we finally become, finally become some earthly good, verses 5 through 11. Or to put it in a different way, the gospel gift that brings us gospel liberty causes us to do some gospel leaving. The gospel gift that brings us gospel liberty causes us to do some gospel leaving. And the gospel leaving starts with putting to death. And that's verses 5 through 7, putting to death. Now notice that Paul gives us a list of vices here in verse 5, a list of vices. But I want you to notice that this is exactly what Paul was just talking about back up in verse 2, when he said, uh, Set your minds on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Notice he says now in verse 5 what he means by the things on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. For those of you who like Greek words, here you go. In verse 2, the phrase in verse 2, don't seek the things on earth, and the phrase here in verse 5, put to death your members or the things that are on earth, is identical in the Greek. Ta epi ta epi Don't set your minds on the things on heaven. Not ta epi taste Put to death your members that are ta epi face gates uh, Or taste gates. I just messed it all up. But there you go. It's identical because this is what Paul meant by verse 2. Right here. Verse 5. So if you keep to Paul's train of thought all the way through this letter. Then this list of vices in verse 5, and you'll have another list in verse 8 that's just an extension of this one. All these vices he listed is part of the domain of darkness. They are part of what it means to comply and conform to, comply with and conform to the elemental spirits of the world. This list is part and parcel of what Paul talked about in chapter 1, verse 21. The alienation, hostility of mind, doing evil deeds. You've got to keep that in mind. You've got to have that always in context in your head, because sometimes people go really weird when they start trying to interpret what the elemental spirits of the world are, and they take it out of context, and they mean spooky, eerie things or whatever. They come up with all kinds of things because they don't read Colossians. So you've got to keep that in mind that this is where we live in our world. This is the elemental spirits of the world. That is the domain of darkness. And here is this list of vices that you see exhibited all the time. Ah, uh, but more. Notice that you've got to understand that these vices he listed in verse 5 are broad generalizations, they're broad categories. If you were to take each one of these in good Puritan fashion, if we were good Puritans, this would be the next 27-part sermon series. Okay, I'm just telling you. right? But if you were to take each one of these vices and dissect them in good Puritan fashion, if you were to slice them and put them on that glass that little glass sliver, and shove it under a microscope and look in there, you would see all these little wriggly things that make up that category. So of you like microscopes, you know what I'm talking about, right? Little wriggly things on the screen. For example, sexual immorality is a very broad category. It includes a host of things. Go back and read Leviticus 18, Leviticus 21. It includes incest. It includes rape. It includes sexual abuse. It includes a man lying down with a man as with a woman. It includes bestiality and on and on and on. You go to Romans chapter 1, it includes lesbianism. It includes greed. It includes revelries of those kinds. And it just keeps going on, right? So it's it's this large category. Do you get it? Okay. I'm saying that because lots of Christians don't get it. They think this word means only pornography because it's porneos. No, it means it's a big category. Okay, got it? So all of these are broad category terms. so then, notice how he puts it. The first list of vices is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Covetousness. Like Achan's. Like Achan's covetousness, which is idolatry. All of them are equally dark. All of them are equally breeding, alienation, hostility of mind, and doing evil deeds. All of them. So then, they include the inside desires and drives. Notice the last three. Passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But They also include the external exhibits, sexual immorality and impurity. Well, what is... What response do these vices evoke from God? Verse 6, on account of these, account of these vices, the wrath of God is coming. Well, Paul was not a very good American and did not want to promote tolerance as it's being promoted today, right? And so here it is. Because of these vices, the wrath of God is coming. And you have to stop and you have to ask, why would the wrath of God be coming Just take some time to think through those vices for a moment. You probably don't have to think very long, because probably you have some experience inside those vices. Because these vices use people. These vices misuse others. These vices treat others as commodities and merchandise to be used up, sucked up, dried up, all for my pleasure, and then discarded. Each of these vices is all about gratifying me at the expense of thee. Sorry, I had to do it that way to make it sound rhythmic or rhyme, right? They're to gratify me at the expense of thee. Very much like Achan and his destructive covetousness. And if, you, if these things run rampant in a society, in an environment, in a community, they wreak havoc. They break havoc in society. They destroy marriages. They destroy livelihoods. They destroy children. They destroy women. They destroy men. And notice that they are lifestyles and life habits. They're lifestyles and life habits. Look at verse 7. Look at how he puts it in verse 7. In these you once walked. In these you once lived day and night. In these, you once sat down at the dinner table and ate them. In these, you once got married with these vices all over you. In these, you once walked. It was a lifestyle. And then he goes on, if you don't get that. He says, when you were living in them. Isn't that an interesting language? Because earlier he talks about us as Christians. We're now in whom? Christ. Once we were in union, solidarity, and grafted into these vices. This is who we were. That's what Paul's saying. In in which you once lived. Now why am I emphasizing this? Because none of these vices is a slip or a slide. None of these vices is a mistake or a blunder. Paul is not talking about a one-time event in your life. He's talking about... Habits. He's talking about customs. Habits and customs personally. Habits and customs in our families. Habits and customs in our community. Habits and and customs in our society. Habits and customs in our nation. In these you once walked when you lived in them as a submissive to the elemental spirits of the world. And these vices are violent, my friends. They may be passively so. You may not see it out there and think it's violent. But it's violent. Therefore, they will receive the very thing they've given out. They'll receive the wrath of God. And notice how Paul begins this list then, back up in verse 5. He's talking to us. We who have been delivered from the domain of darkness who have been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, redeemed, emancipated, set free from such shackles and shame. So he says, we then should be on God's side in this equation. If He's going to come and out, rep, uh, dish out violence because of these sayings, we're to put them to death in us and in the sacred society. Paul's not concerned about us putting the death in a larger country. He's talking about us putting the death in our own lives and in, our, in the sacred society in the church. In fact, we're to put them all away. And this is verses 8 and 9. We're to put them all away. Notice that Paul, in verse 8, comes back to a, what looks like another list of vices, but you have to understand the way he puts the language here. He's not giving us a separate list. He's giving us more of the same that he's already mentioned. Showing us how these vices really are destructive. Listen to how he puts it. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Them what? The are vices he already gave us in verse 5. You must put them all away. And then all of a sudden he expands right here. That includes them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Oh, there it is again. Practices, life habits, lifestyles. Now, notice he puts this list of vices as an expansion of what he's already said, and I have to stop here a moment. Some of you have heard me say this before, but, you know, I'm a preacher, so I get to say this more than once. We've got to see and begin to recognize that these vice lists in Scripture have a purpose. Paul is not a Stoic. He's not a follower of later on Marcus Aurelius who loved to put together vice lists just for the sake of putting them together. He's doing it for a reason. You see, my friends, the Bible rarely, almost never, pulls out one vice and bandies it about as if it is the vice. The Bible almost never pulls out one vice and says, this is the one you need to, be, you need to hate with all your might because it's just one step below the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, as every generation does have its favorite sin to hate. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we're wrong we're picking out one sin and making it our favorite sin to hate. Does anybody remember what happened when we knew for certain that God hated alcohol? What did we do in America? Yeah! right. We even changed the Constitution because we knew that Jesus hated alcohol with every fiber of his being. Our favorite sin to hate. Every generation has it. But I want you to notice the Bible goes against our culture very often and keeps our vices together for a reason. So that we're not allowed to go about with self righteousness and sanctimonious snugness, stuck under our thumbs, under our spiritual suspenders, strutting around saying, Well, I'm better than you. Because that's arrogance. Oh, that's another vice arrogance. Huh. My friends, what he's doing here, to put it in another way, is he's laying out this vice list like your dirty laundry basket, or your hamper. Right? Don't say anything, because we don't want to incriminate anybody. But there in that dirty laundry basket is all that soiled, stinky, smelly garments. All those garments there, reeking and rancid, sometimes more than others. And lo and behold, as you begin to look through that pile of laundry, there's your favorite garment to wear. And it's dirty. These vice lists are just like that dirty hamper. Our favorite sin is in this pile. Did you hear that? Our favorite sin to sin is in this pile. So our favorite sin is in this pile. It smells just as bad as the rest. Whether it's from the internal desires and drives or the external exhibits, our favorite sin to perform is right there. For example, we may feel very very smug because, well, we're not engaged in sexual immorality like those other folks over there. And saying that, I'm very proud of it, while we are simultaneously coveting our neighbors' health and wealth, or while we're slandering people and politicians on social media and emails, or while we're lying through our teeth to our government on our taxes, or lie through our teeth to our spouses or our elders about our actions, whatever. No, our nasty, stinky laundry is right there in the basket, too. One of the most eye-opening moments for me on this whole regard had to do with, in a previous church, I had two ex-prisoners. I don't want to get too dramatic here. One of them had violated his daughter used her to gratify himself and went to prison for eight, nine years. The other one, he was repentant, or at least it seemed like he was repentant and so forth. The other one had actually stolen his mother's checkbook, forged her checks, so he could clean out her bank account to go buy his cocaine to gratify his own desires using his mother. Are you picking up some connections here? But this guy over here who stole his mother's checks and used her and and raped raped her bank account to satisfy himself, looked down his nose. I remember this conversation happened two or three times. Looked down his nose at this other fellow and said, oh, what he did was really horrible. It's the worst. And I'm not like him. He said those words. I'm better than him. And I said, dude, are are you kidding me? No, I'm better. What did you do that got you in prison? Oh, that was nothing. Yeah, right. That's the point, right? You did the exact same thing, just differently. You used, you violated a sacred trust. You were a son. You're supposed to love and honor your mother. And you violated that sacred trust. And you stole her checkbook. And you cleaned out her bank account. Why? You stole from her. You, you broke that trust. You used her to do what? To gratify your desire. What's different from what you did and what he did? It's the same sin acted out differently. But it's easy, even amongst prisoners. Their self-righteousness. It was amazing to see that, see that work its way out. And that's what we do too too often. That's why Paul and the rest of Scripture often put these lists, these vice lists in dirty laundry baskets piled together. So what are we to do? We're to cut these vices out of our inner and outer fellowship, as it were. He says in verse 9, notice what he says, put them all away. In fact, all of these lifestyle and life direction vices, verse 9, are called the old self. Now, that's not a put myself at risk here. I don't think that's a good translation of the ESV, and I don't know why the translators translate it that way. Some of your other translations have actually what it is in the Greek, the old man. Because in the Greek, it's anthropon; it's the old human. Put away all of these practices that are part of the old way of being human. That's the point. The old way of being human, that old way. That old way of living like the rest of your community. That old way of living under the domain of darkness, that old way of compliance with the elemental spirits of the world, that old way of living like the rest of the Republicans live, that old way of living like the rest of the Democrats live, that old way of living like the rest of the libertarians live, that old way of living like the rest of the white folk live, that old way of living like the rest of the black neighbors live, that old way of living like the rest of the Asian community lived. That old way of living like the rest of the Latin barrio lived. We're to put those away. That's the old way of being human. And so Paul then goes on, and he describes this action as if he was talking about us going to Dillard's or Nordstrom's. Right? You go to Dillard's or Nordstrom's to go get some clothes. Where do you, where do you always go with your clothes? You hardly ever walk out, right? You immediately go where? Changing room, the fitting room. When you get into the changing room, to be able to try on those new clothes, what do you got to do with what you're wearing? Put them off. That's the language he's using here. You disrobe yourself. Disrobe yourself. Put off the old way of being human. Once you do that, you can then do the next thing, which is verse 10. You can put on the new way of being human. Verse 10. Put on. Now, somebody here may be thinking, oh, Mike forgot, he let something slip by here. No, I I was waiting for now to bring it up. Okay, here it is. You'll notice in this language in verse 5 through verse 10, there's past tense, and then there's present tense, and all of these put off, put on actions. The present tense is heard in verse 5 and verse 8. Put, put, present active ongoing tense. Put to death, and keep it up. Put to death, and then verse 8, you must put them all away, present active tense. And when you get down to verse 12, he'll say it again, put on, present active tense. So, what does it tell you? Why am I emphasizing that? First off, because it tells you we are now at a moment in life where we are relearning. We're relearning what it means to have Jesus as He is freely offered to us in the Gospel right now. We are now in the process of the rest of our life learning what it means to put on this new way of being that's all wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus, as He is freely offered to us in the Gospel, where we're taking up new skills that intentionally redirect our affections and our thinking and our actions. So one of the things that that means is if we're in that process, that means there's a lot of things to relearn, new things to learn in new ways. And so guess what happens when you're learning something? Anybody ever been an apprentice? In a machine shop somewhere? Right? You don't know that stuff like that. It takes you months, right? And then you still mess up. That's my point. You still mess up. So we're in the process right now of the putting on present active tense, where there's going to be mess-ups. Putting on. So notice that present tense. But then, notice the past tense for the same language. It's there in verse 9 and verse 10. Seeing that you have past tense. That you have put off the old way of being human. And then in verse 10, you have past tense put on the new way of being human. And you stop and you go, when did, we, when did we do this in the past? What's Paul referring to? When did, we put this, when did we put off that old way of being human? And when did we put on this new way of being human in the past? What's Paul talking about? That's the first, three, first two, two chapters and four verses of, of chapter 3. That Paul's been hounding out. When did you do that? When the Father qualified you. Chapter One, verse twelve. When did you put off that old way of being human and put on the new way of being human? when you were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of his love? when he reconciled us in his body by flesh by his death, or chapter two, verse twelve and 13, twelve and 13, uh, eleven and twelve when he who has now reconciled us in his body uh, uh, Verse Chapter 1, verse 22, sorry. When he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, and then verse chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, in him also you were, past tense, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And a little bit further, in verse 20 of chapter 2, when with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. When did you put off the old way of being human and put on the new way of being human, which you're now doing for the rest of your life? When Jesus died for you, for your sins, and was raised for your justification, and you were united and grafted in him. Hello? Is anybody awake? Do you not get it? It began then. It was all by grace alone and Christ alone. And that's the way it's going to continue. He already set you free and put you on a new course, not because you deserved any of it, but in spite or despite the fact that your favorite sin is in that dirty laundry basket and he took you out and he washed you up and he set you on a new path and he gave you the ability to live that way. Thank you. I mean, it's huge. Once you were grafted into Christ, once you were united to Christ by grace alone, received in faith alone, there, there, as God's gospel gift came to you, Jesus is freely offered to the, in the gospel. He set you free, gospel liberty. He emancipated you. He freed you. He released you to do something, to do some gospel leaving, leave behind, put off that old way of being human with all the. Priceless. Put it another way. This gospel leaving is leaving behind what has already been put away, what has already been put away from you, and moving on toward what has already been put on you. Now stop a moment and take that past tense and that present tense and put it together and ponder this for a moment. Of all the things that it means, one of the things that it means is, is that. All churches, for example, are in this moment of past tense, present tense. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me put it this way. Stop looking for a perfect church. We're all on the process between have put off and put on and are putting off and put on. There ain't no perfect church until Jesus returns and he will win. But there ain't one. And so repent of your arrogant sin of looking for the perfect church. And if that doesn't help you, let me just add this. If they accept you in the membership, it's no longer a perfect church. That's one of the things that this is applying to. We need to see that. so notice that as... Matter of fact, Paul then goes on to emphasize how God's gracious gift in Christ is actually already doing something mighty in you, something you could never engineer. Look at the rest of verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being, which is being, present tense. Not being manufactured by me, it's something outside of me that's coming and being applied to me. It's being. You put on the new self, which is the new way of being human, which is being renewed. Being renewed. In the knowledge after the image of its creator. Did you hear it? God is already engineering. God is engineering through Christ, by the Spirit, by grace, is already engineering in you. Renewal. You don't need that book on 15 steps to become a better Christian. wears you out and exhausts you because you never seem to get through the list completely. Right? He's already doing the renewing. Now you have to ask, who's the image? Who's whose image are we being renewed into? Who is this creator? Well he's right back to chapter one verse sixteen. For by Jesus, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. We're already being renewed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Creator. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you remember the series I did on Ten Commandments, if you remember the series I did on Proverbs, you, you know what this means. We went through the whole Ten Commandments, and at the end, what did we say every time? And this is Jesus. He's the perfect law keeper. He actually did everything that God, the Father, required. And you're being renewed into the image of the one who is a perfect law keeper. And then we went through Proverbs, and what did we say? And this is Jesus, the perfect Son of the Father, who always did the Father's will. And guess what? You're being renewed into his image. Is that, I mean, think of it. That's where you're headed. You're already moving in that direction because God is the one renewing you into that image. That's where we're going, and we're already moving there now. So, you're already, by grace alone, being renewed to know more fully who you are, whose you are, and why you are. You're already being renewed in the image of your Creator, the Lord Jesus. And so those alternative Jesuses on cell over there in chapter 2, they all want you to go slide right back under the tyranny of the elemental spirits of the world. But Jesus, as He has freely offered to you in the Gospel, has already made you a free man. Has already made you a free woman. Has already made you a free girl. Has already made you a free boy. And he made you able to start living free. Therefore, and here comes our fourth point, we've been put right. Put right. And I want you to notice when we get to verse 11, being put right is far bigger than most of us imagine. Verse 11. Now, when we read passages like verses 5 through 11, we think as good Americans and as good Westerners, we think that this is all about me and Jesus. So I've had those conversations where I've sat down with people and they're saying, well, I'm trying really hard to put the old me away. Well, that's not talking about the old me. Right? But that's that me and Jesus thinking where I think only about me and I never seem to get around to we. Are you picking this up? Because it's not about me and Jesus. Verse 11 tells you that. It disabuses us of our pious egoism and our sanctimoniously spiritual narcissism. Verse 11 shouts to us, it's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. But in that we is me. Does that, I like that. That sounds really cool. I should write a book. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It's not about me and Jesus. Because when you go that route, you almost never get around to the we. But it's actually, verse 11, about we and Jesus, and inside that we is me. So, notice how he puts it. He says, Here, first word, four letters. Here. Well, where's here? Here, grafted into Christ. Here, having put on the new way of being human. Here, where we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our Creator Jesus. Here, there is no Greek and Jew. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised, there's not barbarian, Scythian, slave free but Christ is all, and He is in all. Here, where we have been drawn together in a new way of being human, by the grace of God through the Son of God, received by faith. Here, those old, I hope you're listening, those old lines of ethnic and generational divisions. And socioeconomic disunions have been defanged and stripped of their destructive and domineering powers. Because by grace alone, we have been brought inside where Christ is all and in all. We've been put right. We could talk about justification, but this is even bigger, or maybe an outworking of justification. We've been. Put right, put on God's good side, which means then that we have now been brought into and put in a right frame of mind, in a place, and placed in a right way of living together. Let me put it to you this way. It's that last statement in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Since Jesus, chapter 1, verse 18, since Jesus is the head of the body the church, then Christ is all. It means he is so connected to the church that the way we treat his church is the way that we treat Jesus. The way that we treat the church is the way that we treat Jesus. Anybody remember a guy by the name of Saul? A guy from Tarsus named Saul. He used to run around killing Christians, murdering them, beating them up, dragging them into prison. And then when he was taking a trip to do some more, on the way up to Damascus, who meets him? And what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my Christians? Is that what he says? Why are you persecuting Me. me? Good job. That was catechism right there. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his church. The way we treat his church is the way that we're treating Jesus. Christ is all. And then the next part, he is in all. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul told us that the mystery is, quote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In you, in you, second person plural, in you all, the hope of glory. And so Christ is in all of his people. And so then how we react and act toward one another is how we are acting and reacting really toward Jesus. It really is we and Jesus, and in the we, it includes me. My friends, the gospel gift gives us gospel liberty so we can do some gospel leaving, leaving behind the old ways of doing society, leaving behind the old ways of being human, because we are drawn together into his new way of being society, into his new way of being human, together together. Paul has even more to say about this in the next section, which we'll get to next week. Now, there are many applications just lying all over this passage. I already gave you one, two, three, something like that. But anyways, here's two more as we tie these up. The first has to do with us seeing that our being in Christ means we're in Him together. Now, most of you are probably sitting there going, what is he talking about? I'm just talking about the passage. But I want to go a little bit further here. Because I want you to remember where you live. It means that we now have to push hard against a society that is pushing hard against us. A society, a culture, that loves to demean and divide generational groups, for example that loves to be derisive and disparaging of other generations. By God's grace alone, He's made us His sacred society together where Christ is all and in all. And so we're bound together. Therefore, we together, we're together and we love together and we lean on each other together. But there's no competition. There's no contest. We should never ever, ever, cross our arms and say, well, my generation's better than yours. Hogwash! Poppycock! Your parents were slapping their head like this when you made those stupid decisions as a 20-year-old. I guarantee it. Even Plato, 600 BC, was slapping his head and saying the young people in our generation are a bunch of hogs. They're just terrible. Every generation looks down on the previous generation. Now we live in a culture that makes money. Are you listening to me? Makes money at dividing us along those tension lines. Makes politics out of it. Gets you to vote their way because of it. Stay with me. Come on. Because we're in Jesus, I grace a lot. Pushing hard against the culture that's pushing hard against us. We're no longer doing what the rest of society does. We're not in competition or contest with one another. We're comrades and companions by grace alone and Christ alone. It's not me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. And inside of the we is me. Here's one last one. Which brings me around to this last point. It's a related subject. Very short. We put it in the words of an early Christian pastor named Cyprian of Carthage, about the third century. He cannot have God for his father, who, who has not the church for his mother. He cannot have God as his father, who has not the church for his mother. That sounds all Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, and then all of a sudden you read John Calvin and his Institutes, Book Four, paragraph, uh, chapter one, paragraph four, And he gives his hearty amen to that statement because it comes right out of the Scripture, really. And he adds to it. And he says, it is always fatally dangerous to be separated from the church. There's where Christ is all and in all. Well, I want to be closer to Jesus. Are you going to church? Are you engaged in church? Well, I just want to know Jesus better. Are you involved in church? You get the point? So, all that's part of, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, second person rule, just as you all were taught, abounding with these Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, that you're the one who took us who lived out those vices. I don't care what we say. We lived out those vices. We lived in them. You came and you pulled us out. You set us free. You washed us up. You made us your own. Forgive us for the times that we have been arrogant and looked derisively at others in your church. At one another, maybe. Forgive us for not seeing Christ as all and in all. And here we are. We're getting ready to come to communion. We're getting ready to come to communion. It is all about what you have done for us and how you have knit us together. Lord, forgive us. Help us together to grow and move forward in this put on, and to put on as we're putting off.